Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Thanks for finding us. I'm your host, Cindy House. Hello. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, the best way to do that is sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. We're also a listener-funded podcast, and you can make a contribution. You can get a Basic Folk beanie by going to our shop at basicfolk.com. Give a contribution of $5 a month, and a handmade basic folk beanie made for you by my wonderful mom will be headed your way. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod, currently active on Facebook and Instagram. Whoo, really good one today, Meg Hutchinson. It has been 10 years since Boston area Meg Hutchinson has released an album and she did it super quietly, so no shade if you didn't realize that your favorite middle sister is back with some seriously devastating songs. Meg grew up just outside of Great Barrington, Mass., where she had an idyllic childhood surrounded by woods and framed by her desire to become a folk singer. That dream was realized after she graduated college, quit her organic lettuce farm job, and moved to Boston in the early 2000s. There, she wove herself into its vibrant folk community, gigging around New England, performing in the subway, and getting signed to the prestigious Red House Records, where she released three albums. Throughout her life, she's suffered from severe mental illness, experiencing her first major bout of depression at age 19. Not understanding, she felt ashamed and hid her illness for nine years. After a huge whirlwind 2006 tour in England, where she experienced a high never felt before, Meg came home and felt mania and severe depression all at once. She called her family to help her, and it was actually her younger sister, Tessa, who eventually got Meg professional help. After a long road stabilizing and healing, Meg has a grasp on her bipolar disorder, which she calls by its former name, manic depression. She's discovered her calling as a palliative care hospital chaplain and hospice worker. She's no longer working music. She's playing music. And that's how she approached this new album, All the Wonder, All the Beauty, an album she says is about things we don't want to talk about. She writes about her mental illness, midlife, and death. This is an intense discussion with one of my favorite people. Lots of crying in this interview. I'm so happy she's released this album and excited for you to get to know Meg Hutchinson, 
who I fondly call Marge. Let's take a listen to a song from her new album. The song is You Can Just Be Music, and we'll get to our conversation with Meg Hutchinson on Basic Folk. Okay, Marge, let's do this. Cindy, it is so good to see you. It's really good to see you too. Thanks for being the, on the podcast. This is like, I feel like a long time coming. It's been 20 years since we first hung out on ERS. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've been like crying all day in preparation of this interview. So hopefully we'll make it through. That's good. I think we're in the same zone, so we'll we'll let okay. all of our feelings out today. Okay, good. Um, before we start, I want to give a shout out to a podcast radio show called Song of the Soul that you appeared on in June. Excellent conversation. And of course, the documentary about your mental health journey, Pack Up Your, your Sorrows from 2018. If you are a Meg Hutchinson fan, you got to check both of those things out. It's required. Okay, these are some long ass questions. Here we go. You grew up in the Berkshires in Western Mass with former hippies for parents. Uh, you did not have a TV, spent a lot of time in the woods, exposed to the music of Greg Brown, Joni Mitchell, poetry like Mary Oliver and William Stafford. And you said there were so many quiet hours in the day, so many spaces between events. You were also the middle of three sisters, and your mom called you her golden child. You were always behaving well, which I can completely believe. Um, In reflecting on your manic depression later on, you have spoken about how you were quiet by nature, and it took a long time to ask for help. So finally, let's get to the question of this setup. It seems like it's both been your saving grace and your demise. So what has been the evolution of your relationship with quiet? Wow. Right into the best deep question, Cindy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm going to take a deep breath into that quiet. Hmm. Gosh, that's a good question. It has been my solace, my deep comfort, especially quiet out in the natural world. That was my other mother, you know, being out in this little half acre of land where we were just free range kids, you know, at the end of the school day, we were just out in the forest in that quiet, so close to the earth. And that was a deep comfort as a child. But my capacity to be so quiet, and if you do all of the personality tests, I'm the most introverted of all of the, like the Myers-Briggs, I'm the INFJ. The Enneagram, I'm like the Enneagram 5, which is the weird hermit. And uh, that became a a really life-threatening obstacle when I started to struggle because my impulse was to go really deep inside myself and try to solve it on my own. And... That from my first depression when I was 19 until 28, when I had a breakdown and couldn't hide it anymore, I really kept it very close. Uh, 
and didn't fully understand what was happening either, which is the confusing thing with mental illness is that you don't, you don't know if your experience is out of the ordinary because being a teenager is so weird to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then your body's changing, everything's changing all through your teens. And then you just kind of assume, well, maybe this is just part of growing up, you know, all these weird feelings. And then at a certain point, those depressions started to get very, very low. And then I would almost think I need help. And then I would be on the upswing again, and I'd have a higher high than I'd ever had before. And I would think, well, now I'm just through it. I'm through the worst of it. And it's all going to be okay now. And look how much, look how social I am. Look how self-confident I am. You know, that's the price I paid going through the darkness. Did you think that everybody else was going through this? Especially hanging out with artists all the time. You know, we're all pretty deep feeling, deeply emotional. I, I'd say every artist has an understanding of the depths, whether or not they get to a dangerously low place. They're, you know, they're all, they're all in that deep world. So especially because of who I was around, I thought maybe this is normal. <laughs> you know? mm. um, so it really took hitting a place where my brain truly couldn't work anymore for me to realize, oh, no, this is this is actually something where I can't function anymore. Mm -hmm. I really felt like I had early onset Alzheimer's when when I went into that mixed state and uh you know, couldn't remember anything, couldn't do very basic, you know, basic brain function. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit more of your story when it comes to music. You knew you wanted to be a folk singer when you were eight. You took guitar lessons starting at 10. And then at age 11, you were given your late grandmother's 1957 Martin, which is a nice guitar to give an 11-year-old. But it worked. You started writing and at the time, you didn't know where the songs were coming from. Present day Meg, however, can listen back and recognize depression in the lyrics. And you also say that you feel a lot of tenderness for your younger self when you listen to those songs. When did you start to recognize that mental health struggle in your songs? And what did it take for you to feel that compassion for your kid self? Mm. I'm still cultivating that tenderness in ways, you know, I think the stronger you feel, the more you're able to go way, way back. I think for many years, I was just trying to heal from the immediate breakdown in 2006 and the coming to terms with having a mental illness and learning how to be open about it. And I didn't have the awareness. I just wasn't ready to go further back and understand my childhood on a deeper somatic level, you know, mm. uh, I had told myself a story of what my childhood was and I was sticking to it until <laughs> I think I finally hit a place of being, uh, at peace enough and learning how to work with this illness enough to realize, oh, there's some deeper, deeper work and I'm ready to go further back. But I, I remember when I was diagnosed and hospitalized, which was exactly this month, 17 years ago. Wow. It's my, my 17th anniversary <laughs> this week. And uh, I remember coming out of that summer from hell and going, oh, this is what I've been singing about. <laughs> like Part of my songs knew it, but I hadn't connected the dots. Like some part of me wasn't owning the songs fully. Mm -hmm. And I just remember listening back to my early records after that summer and going, wow, how could I know all of this without really owning it and without recognizing truly what I was dealing with? Did you ever figure that out? I think it's back to that hiding, you know, that, that impulse to hide it and to say, oh, I don't, I don't know where this song comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just the muse or it's. I wrote it for someone else or, you know, it's that we kept up quite a, a front in our family, I think, of being 
you know, I was the professor's daughter, lived in a small town. I was trying to live up to my role that I had set for myself in the family. And it was hard to own those things. And it was really amazing to look back later and go, wow, I was, I was writing myself these songs that I would later need so badly. You know, they were like these little maps that I had sent into the future for myself. And that summer I was hospitalized. There were so many songs that were very dear friends to me. It was uncanny, like Gatekeeper would just be going through my mind or really early songs that were just these friends that I went, oh, now I really, now you're here with me. I really need you now. Wow. And now I understand why I wrote you. <laughs> it was very moving. That's amazing. It's like you have a new relationship with these songs. Wow. You have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but you prefer to call it manic depression. You say that feels more precise. I think we've started to use bipolar as a an adjective in ways that are it's just really negative. We use it in a casual way in life, like, oh, they're so bipolar, uh, which further adds to misunderstanding around the illness and I think has an implication of untrustworthiness or unpredictability or, mm. and of course the illness has all of those levels. It's on, we're all on a spectrum, right? And there are points where the illness becomes so severe that there's a, a lot of uh, unpredictability and behavioral surprises. But to me, manic depression just sums it right up. You know, you struggle with depression, you struggle at the upper end of that range. And somehow I think bipolar has just been adopted in a, as a weird adjective mm -hmm. to describe someone's behavior, not in the context of mental illness even, but just, I hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, even, even like talking about the weather, I'll hear someone on the news, oh, the weather's just so bipolar recently. And in the same way that we use, I think sometimes we use depression too casually too, you know, but manic depression just feels it just that's what it is, you know. In hearing that you started to have different relationships with your own songs, what can you say about the way that you started to relate to other art that may have been expired by depression or by mania? Mm. I was deeply grateful for the work of Kay Redfield Jameson, who's written a, a bunch of books, uh, one in particular around creativity and mental illness that was very comforting to me and helped me feel that I was connected to a lineage of people who have used all of this, you know, I think of it as having way more colors on the palette than I would necessarily want, but mm. you look at other artists who've had a similar range like that, and you look at how they've used that, incorporated that into what they make in a way that's transformative. And it, it felt really helpful to get an example of how other people have used that. And it's also scary because you see how many times artists have not survived that especially in generations where there were fewer options for treatment, less awareness. And uh, I think for artists that tend towards the manic side more than the depressed side, there are fewer reasons to stay on medication because that high can be really enchanting. And I guess I'm lucky that I tend towards the low end in the illness much more than the high end uh, because I think that helps encourage one to never miss a day of medication. You know, you feel like, oh no, uh, I know those depths. And yeah. uh, so I think it's harder for artists that tend on the more manic side as their, you know, the side that they lean toward, that's, it's harder for them to, to treat the illness consistently. I remember you talking about the fear of losing your creativity and you've said, Creativity and mental illness are very connective. 
What was the process of getting over that fear and remaining connected to your creativity? And how do you work to maintain it? I still have that fear. I definitely worried in the last 10 years. I worried that it was changed forever. And, you know, in that time, I'd gone back to school. I'd spent four years in grad school. I'd, my brain had been very full of other things. Uh, but I was wondering how much of this is that I've been meditating for many years? How much of this is that I've been on this? It's an anti-seizure medication. So it literally keeps the brain from, <laughs> from lighting up in these, you know, electrical activity that's too far above baseline. Oh, wow. And so that, of course, has an impact. And then I wondered how much of it is that I'm just doing well. And the songs have served this function of helping me when I'm really struggling. So how much of this lack of writing new material is a function of just doing well, you know, so I had all these questions. And I just felt really out of touch with it for mm. many years. And of course, the less you make it a regular practice, the harder it is to reconnect with it. You know, I've talked about it like a marriage. That's you know? so true for everything. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's so true for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah you got to work at it if you want to maintain it. You have to tend to the relationship. And, you know, I've shared before, there were times where I felt like I was so eager for it, but the songs just, they weren't talking back to me. They weren't communicating with me. And like any marriage, there are these long stretches where you're missing each other. You're somehow not not connecting and you're sleeping in separate beds for a while. And that's how it felt creatively up until the point where I realized I just have to do this. No matter, mm. I just have to, you know, it, it was a, after the pandemic and working in the hospital for a couple of years, I realized I, I just need to play. And when I could reframe it as I'm just going to do it for the fun of it, the way it was when I was a kid, it opened it back up for me again. And I realized that it doesn't matter what I end up with. This process is just so joyful for me. Uh, if I can get out of the way of being afraid that the process is different, you know, I think early on it was just creativity would just happen in these like lightning storms, right? When it comes over you, you just, you stop everything and you have to write and you, it just feels very, um, intense. And now it's very different. It's a slower process. It's a, um, you know, it's not like lightning bolts. It's like maybe distant heat lightning. <laughs> you know what I, <laughs> I have to, I have to slowly and patiently approach it in a different way. You know, we're in a very different phase of the marriage and I have to honor that, you know, there's been a lot of change in this time and uh, so this recent record was just about going back to the joy and just celebrating that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have to always do heavy lifting. It can be the joy that I remember as a little kid, like jumping up and down on my bed, making up songs just for the, the sheer, you know, enjoyment of it. The only time that you d ever did anything bad when you <laughs> jumped on the bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I have a lot of questions about a lot of the things you just said, but I'm just going to keep going down my list here so we don't forget anything because there's so much to talk about, Meg. It's wild. It's truly wild. And like I said at the beginning of this interview, if you haven't seen the documentary Pack Up Your Sorrows, you should watch it. Meg's story is so well documented in that 2018 film. Just to like sum up, what happened? You went on this whirlwind tour in England in 2006, partying hard, feeling like a rock star, feeling more high than you've ever felt. You came home, things spiraled out of control. You were manic and depressed simultaneously. Now, this is the time where you thought you had early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and you said, I made the bravest call I've ever made in my life. I called my mom and said, I'm coming home. Something's really wrong with my brain. Why did you choose to call your mom and did you know how she was going to react? Mm. 
I think there's something wired deeply into us when things get really scary. No matter what our childhood has been like, there's an impulse to go home, all the way home. And that was the house I was born in, literally born at home in that house where my mom mm. still is. So I think there was a very, when you're in that state, it's all very primal emotions. So I think there was just a desperation um, there's a lot else that was happening at that time that was very traumatic. And I, I had to literally run away from my house and from a relationship that had started on that tour. And, uh, so I think the impulse was just to go all the way home. Hmm. And, and my hope was that if I'm around the people that know me best, they're going to be able to figure this out because I can't anymore. I don't know what's happening. That logic makes total sense to me. I feel that um, in your family, traditionally, if you felt sad, you'd write a poem, you'd go on a nature walk, your family wasn't supposed to need therapy, and neither parent was equipped to help you in the way that you needed. And in the documentary, this is pretty, this is something, your parents are speaking to you about how they tried, but could not help what do you know about how difficult it was for them to talk about this to you in the documentary that they tried and tried but could not help their kid? Mm, I was so proud of them for being willing to be in the documentary and for sharing their experience of that summer. Um, of course, with 17 years in between, I've had a lot of time to dig into a lot of layers and, uh, you know, there were ways that it was really hard that they still didn't think I had a mental illness. Like they still, even though I came home and said something's really wrong, they were like, let's go on a nature walk. I'm going to show you my favorite blue heron that I found at this pond down the road. And I'm working out, my mom was working on a sermon for her Unitarian church about the power of positive thinking. So for the first days when I was home, we, I am not exaggerating. We were doing nature walks and I was being read these power of positive thinking <laughs> quotes and it was horrible. I mean, it was, it was absolutely terrifying because I was so much more uh, unwell than my parents could conceive of. And I mm. think that parents have a deep, deep need for their children to be okay and in their own way, they were bringing all of their tools, their poetry, and their uh, the closest my parents got early on to, for me, what felt like them getting how serious it was. As I remember my dad came over to my mom's house. I was sitting on the screen porch, and he looked at me, and you know, these are hippies, right? Former hippies. And I remember he said to my mom, he didn't know I could hear, boy, it looks like she's been on a bad acid trip. Ah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, at least my dad has this frame of reference for what a bad acid trip feels like. So we're on to something here. Uh, but it was really my uh, younger sister who had just started uh, at Smith School of Social Work. She was in her first semester. And uh, she was the one who my sisters, both of them, you know, recognized, oh, this is much more serious. And she came driving home from school and she just started Xeroxing every everything she could give my parents to try to help educate them. And uh, my sisters were the the ones that said, we we recognize you need more help. And so they helped me get to the hospital. Mm. Tess appears in the trailer for Pack Up Your Sorrows. And I was like, oh, I have to watch this. Like, I have to. I was I did not know that part about the story that Tess is the one that had you committed, you did not want to go back to the hospital and she actually committed you. And she says, uh, the day that you were committed was the day I loved you more fiercely. And she talked about how it was like not a human love. It was like an animal protectiveness. Like every time she appears on screen, I like start weeping like I am right now. And I've met Tess and I've always admired your close relationship with her how did it fare through the first years of your treatment? Mm. I mean, she is such a blessing in my life. From the minute she was born, she's four years younger, I was desperate for a baby sister. Like, all I wanted was to love on a little kid, you know? And then I got this sister, and she, 
she has this ferocity to her love. It's just, you know, when you're that, when you're that depressed, you can't feel anything. You're so far beyond sadness. And I couldn't feel love. I couldn't receive love. I couldn't feel it, but I could feel her ferocity. It was like she was pissed. And to this day, we have this ongoing joke that if I were to ever die from suicide, she would be so angry. She would haunt me through all of my future lifetimes. <laughs> and that, that, the intensity of her love and her, she was fearless. I mean, she'll say to you, I was terrified that I was going to lose you. And she was, but she was also, she was ferocious, you know, and uh, I was hospitalized three times. The first time you know, I was very willing and, and I thought it would be as simple as, oh, they'll give me sleeping medication because I couldn't, one of the biggest problems is I stopped sleeping altogether. And if you can't sleep, your brain can't do anything to right itself. And, um, and in a mixed state, you know, you're manic and depressed. So it's just this collision of energies. And, and then when you become, you know, so suicidal, it's, it's terrifying because you can't even sleep to get a little rest from it. And, so I thought, oh, it's going to be as simple as I'll go in. They'll give me some high, high-powered sleeping medications and some Ambien. All I need is moderate. You know, <laughs> they can transplant hearts, so they can definitely take care of this. And I was, I was mortified in my small town to be in a psychiatric hospital. But um, what I learned was it's a lot slower process. So I checked myself back out that first time, uh, really because it wasn't helping yet. And of course, these things take a long time. The medication takes a long time to start to be effective. And I agreed with the diagnosis. They immediately diagnosed me with bipolar one disorder and I agreed with it. But instead of feeling relieved, I was horrified at first. I was so, I felt so ashamed. And, uh, so yeah, that the middle time I checked myself in the first and last times, but that middle time, uh, my sister with her ferocity just, you know, she, because I can present incredible back to this childhood role I had, I can present incredibly well, even when I'm acutely suffering. And I was going to talk my way back out of the hospital. Mm. I could put on enough of a, a front that um, I probably would have been able to leave that day. But she just, she was relentless. She's like, she's going to die if she doesn't stay here. And, uh, I remember her just blocking the door. I wasn't actively trying to run, but she could read my body language and how desperate I was. And uh, she could always beat me up from the time she was like, she, <laughs> we didn't fight because she was tough and strong. And I remember like we were a little scrappy a few times when we were, and I was like, oh, she can beat me up. I'm not going to mess with her, you know? And so I felt that intensity of her love. And it's one of the great blessings of my life. There's another time where she appears in the documentary where Tess took you on a whale watch and she says, I was preparing for your death all summer. Let's do the things that you used to make us happy and see what happens. So you go on whale watches. And you said, I used to crave death in the water, but with this trip, I could feel the sunlight again. Then Tess took you swimming and you said, I could feel life in the water. And it seems like the water has been so important to you. but and, and I want to hear more about your relationship to water. What has it been like and what is it like now? Mm. I think one of the one of the blessings of how the illness manifested for me is that that relationship with nature that was so intimate, most of my ideation about leaving this world was just wanting nature to just take me back. And uh, I didn't want to cause anyone any trouble. So I just wanted to, I wanted the water to take me back or I wanted, I I wanted to be able to disappear. And you know, obviously, (laughs) you know, your, your rationalization is very, uh, but I had this longing to just swim away, you know, and um, what was beautiful is that my sister knew, she knew when to block that door for me, but she also knew, you know, she could see by mid August that I was up to a therapeutic dose on the medication I was still really struggling, but she, she took some chances and 
even letting me swim. I mean, she, I remember watching her on the beach and she was just like, she was ready to jump in, yeah. right? But I was just- <laughs> Like the binoculars up, like- Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. a big red life yeah. saver under her exactly. arm. Exactly. Like I knew, you know, she'd call the Coast Guard in a hot second. I, yeah. I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. But the fact that I could be in that water and, and yeah, feel the life force energy in it again. And she was, she was so smart to- keep taking me to these very ordinary places and and doing things with me that we had loved. And at first I couldn't feel any of it. And, you know, nothing helps when you're that low. But I remember the first time she would take me to get these huge ice cream cones. And I remember the first day when I could actually get a little rush of joy from chocolate ice cream. It was like the first, (laughs) the very first positive feeling that came back was chocolate ice cream. Mm. And so she knew when to take me out of that world of being a patient and when to just put me back into the world of us just being kids and doing things we loved, going on whale watches, eating ice cream, going, you know, to places that had been comforting. Did she become a social worker? She sure did. She must be the best. (laughs) She's really good. Yeah. You know, she always, she's always says, you know, Marge, you you saved your own life. And I agree with her that when it comes down to it, we all have we have to save our own lives. It she she allowed me freedoms. There were many times where I had to make that decision on my own. Uh so I, when I talk about this, I'm always really careful to say none of us are in charge of one another's lives. We do our damnedest. Um, but if there's one thing that I've learned in my family is that sometimes we can't save the people closest to us. And it's mm-hmm. gut-wrenching. It's absolutely gut-wrenching that sometimes we can have more of an impact on people that we don't know than on our closest people. And I've had to learn that again and again in our family because these illnesses don't happen in isolation. They happen across generations. And mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's absolutely gut wrenching that we don't have that capacity, especially when we know the pain so deeply that we can't use that to to sometimes bring the people closest to us back from that edge. Um, it's heartbreaking, and uh, so I'm always careful when I talk about it, and she is too. That we never put it, you know, in this context of oh yeah, if everyone had a sister like her, no one would die, you know. No, she says to me again and again, you wanted to live and you chose that at every turn, you know, even though it was close. And so to anyone who's listening, who has lost someone they love, just know that we have to, and that we very humbly recognize that, you know, you can't, there's only one life we can save, right? (laughs) We do our darndest for everyone else, but. Oh, uh, tissue time again. Yeah. This one got me too. (laughs) Marge, stop. Cut it out. All right. I'm so excited and ecstatic for you for this new record, All the Wonder, All the Beauty. You said this whole album is things we don't want to talk about. And this is where we talk about the um, music as play. You are here not to work music, but to play music, be playful. How do you remain playful in these hard topics of death, middle age, depression? So many of these songs came out of uh, my last super hard depression, which was in 2018, the year I turned 40. Perfect timing, you know, perfect timing for the midlife (laughs) journey. And, uh, that's the other thing I want to say too about living with these illnesses that even when you do everything right, it's still something you work with your whole life. You know, what I've learned is that recovery and healing is just not a linear process. You know, it's a spiral and you come back around. And, um, so some of the really hefty songs on this record came out of that low in 2018. And I would say the joy and playfulness came in when I was just having to put the critic away and actually make this record and Mm. take these little scraps that I'd been holding through so many years that I didn't know how to finish and just say, I'm going to play. So the musically, I, I found a way to be really playful on this record. 
and to fill in gaps where I maybe couldn't find words in the way that I maybe feel like I used to be able to, to allow the music to give me those other subtle things that maybe the language is getting simpler, but the music is getting more uh, nuanced. And so it is kind of funny that this record is, it is, it's all things that we don't want to, you know, grief, midlife, mental illness, loss. Uh, but I think that the song, You Can Just Be Music, might be that that song that reflects how my relationship with it's changing. And, you know, music's been kind of a serious thing in my life. Like, it's <laughs> it's had to be very weight-bearing. I know other people that music's just always been joy and play and you know, for me, it's been really weight bearing from the time I was a little kid. Yeah. You know, I turned to music to calm my body and not to, you know, dance and be silly. And so, yeah, this record, uh, you know, there's some really hefty stuff in there, but the process of making it was very joyful, very playful, just figuring out how to finish these songs without being critical and it was so fun. I was just trying stuff out all by myself in my house, like ridiculous harmonies and <laughs> trying the full range of my voice that I would never have dared to try in front of another human being. And <laughs> it was truly playful and it was truly a way to, to kind of, after a bunch of years in the pandemic, I just had so much I needed to get out, you know? Mm, yes, your voice does feel very open mm. on this album, which opens with this song, All the Wonder. I've made some assumptions about this song, mm. and I'd love to see if I'm correct. I love the use of space in this song. There's like three times where I'm like, okay, the song's over. And then you're like, nope, it's not over. Um, false endings. It's a DJ's worst nightmare, but yes. <laughs> I, I love it. I wonder what this has to do with you discovering how to live mm. between hope and fear. Um, in your Buddhist teachings, you discovered the third option, which is to rest mm. in the space. So how does that space make it into the record? I definitely, you know, I work in hospice now, so I work with people who are at the end of their lives. And this recognition, this deep integration of impermanence is something that I hope we can all be awake to because it it changes the whole quality of your life when you're just aware of how precious it is, how briefly we're all here. And I didn't set out intentionally to have those pauses. There were some reasons technically it happened because I had the chorus, which is a different time than the verses. I don't know music theory at all, but it just, it changes uh, from this like waltz into something else in the chorus and then back to the waltz. And I didn't intentionally be like, oh, it'd be so clever if I left a, a break here and people would think it was, you know, the end. And um, some of it was, I just couldn't figure out a smooth transition <laughs> into that chorus. Mm. It wasn't the Buddhist teachings? Well, my intention originally was like, I'll just go in and I'll squish them together the way you can in Pro Tools. And then I was like, oh, I really love this. I really love this moment of quiet, you know, and hoping that, yeah, that the spaciousness of of recognizing how brief it is. Mm. You know, we, I think I said, we really aren't here very long. If we're lucky, we wake up. Yes. And that's that's the biggest takeaway of the suffering part of my life is is waking up to the beauty. It's many small deaths in the course of a life when you live with this illness and boy it makes the beauty of the world just so vivid, so so precious because you've had these many small deaths along the way. Mm. The song Scattering My Ashes, especially where you sing It's Better to Practice Dying, completely wrecks me. Um, Meg, you have a master's in divinity. You've been studying with a Tibetan Buddhist monk in Boston since 2009, and you work as a palliative care hospital chaplain and a hospice worker. I have heard that the secret to happiness is thinking about thinking about death at least three times a day is what I hear. Hmm. Do you think that's true? And how often do you think about mm. death? Mm. 
Also, not the first time Meg Hutchinson has sang about her own death. <laughs> you know my catalog better than I do, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, meditation on death is a, at the core of Buddhist practice, is that awareness of impermanence and awareness of the preciousness of life, especially the preciousness of human life. You know, from a Buddhist perspective, we only get to be in a human consciousness every now and then. It's pretty rare. In the scheme of the many, the infinite lifetimes we have, this is a particularly precious one because in the human life, we have just enough suffering. The Buddhists say just enough suffering to find a spiritual life and to wake up. And that in these higher realms, life's too easy and you don't have any reason to have a spiritual life because everything's going really great in these godly realms. You know, there's just no suffering. And, and in these lower realms, you know, you don't have the tools to, to do the practice. So the human life is very precious from a Buddhist perspective. Mm. But I also have always been awake to it in a particular way like I in second grade my god sister died of cancer and I think even as a little child I remember standing there you know outside her window toward the end of her life and I, I remember the wind was just blowing the curtains and the grown-ups weren't letting me be in there because they thought I was maybe too young to see her that way and I remember that my feeling being out you know, in the driveway, looking up at her window, my feeling wasn't of fear. My feeling was, I'm supposed to be in there. I'm supposed to be with you right now. And also, I think there's something about being eight years old and, you know, being aware of loss in a way that, and loss of a peer, it's different from losing an elder. You know, I think loss of someone your age who's appeared vibrantly healthy, and it was a very early awakening to the fact that we have no idea how long we get to be here. Hmm. But it's it's been a very interesting relationship with, with death, you know, both within that one year of my breakdown, I sat with my grandmother through the most beautiful end of life that I've ever experienced, this absolutely deeply spiritual, deeply ready, deeply grateful woman who's was turning 89 and was ready and it was there was nothing scary about it and uh i had that experience and then seven months later i got to see the very other side of death uh in dealing with my own wish to escape and so it's been a it's been a very complicated relationship, but I've chosen to stay right up close to it, keep a close eye on it, <laughs> you know? Right, with your binoculars and your lifesaver. Yeah, I see the absolute, like, beauty of it, but I also see, uh, you know, how I've had to deal with the other side of it, which is the more, more scary side of it, you know? So if I think of it from the perspective of having numerous lifetimes, however you want to perceive that, I feel that I'm someone who's spent a lot of time with it. Um, it's familiar to me, that threshold. And uh, I know it from the beautiful side, and I know it from the dangerous side, or the, um, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, it's been at the core <laughs> of my life. Um Without violating any HIPAA laws, yeah. when you are with somebody at the end of their life in hospice and they're afraid, how do you handle that? You follow their lead. You don't say, oh, don't be afraid, or uh, you try to regulate your body very, very deeply so that your presence can be a comfort even though often it's you know it's not about what you say and you're not trying to talk someone out of what they're feeling you know sometimes death is absolutely terrifying for people and there's nothing that you can do as the chaplain nothing you would want to do to you know talk them out of what they're feeling you're really just there to honor whatever it is that they're going through and to try to be so grounded and so present that they don't feel alone in mm. whatever it is they're they're facing and 
you know, I learn again and again, you never quite know how it's going to unfold, you know. Uh, but our role is to be present to whatever's arising for someone. And, um, you know, sometimes, certainly in this work, nothing leads me to believe that death is a terrible thing or a scary thing or uh, I don't feel that that energy just disappears. I don't know what happens, but it, it doesn't, you know, sometimes I'll just, it's not about reassuring people, but it's just saying, you know, I've been present at this threshold many times and I don't know, I wouldn't even necessarily say that, but it's it's just about being present and I think as my sister could do with me, um, being fearless in the presence of someone else's pain um, can be very grounding. You know, ultimately we're not trying to diminish what someone's going through, we're just trying to let them know that they're not alone in that moment. With the new album, All the Wonder, All the Beauty, where you're no longer working music, but you're playing music, how does the post-album promoting mode feel versus previously? Like, what are you doing different? And do you find yourself missing anything from your working days? So I'm not doing anything to promote it, <laughs> which is... <laughs> absolutely delightful and I'm so grateful that you know just a handful of people I deeply admire like you have reached out to me and said hey let's talk about this record uh, it's just been very organic I'm uh, I'm just not promoting it and uh, the one thing that I found myself very surprised and very uh, grateful for was just reconnecting with people that have been listening to my music I think I maybe figured since I've been out of this for 10 years that I kind of figured everyone else had too. And this core small group that did the Kickstarter and made the record possible. And this just amazing interaction that I've had just virtually because I'm not performing, uh, where people just tell me that the songs have been useful to them. It's all I could hope for as an artist. And I found myself a few times going, oh, I really, I do miss getting to talk to people after a show, or I do miss that feeling on stage where I, I look out and I just know that we're all in the same space together and I'm feeling this resonance from someone and I'm knowing that it's impacting them. And so I, I miss that a little bit, but I don't miss being on stage. Um, but I miss that, just that magic that happens when you, when you feel the connection in a small venue, you mm. just feel that the songs are landing and, um, and that they're useful. So it's, it's, it's really touching. I didn't actually expect really to hear from anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's been, it's been so moving to just know that Hmm. they're keeping people company. Okay. Let's talk about the dogs. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I accidentally, listened to this podcast where this guy was like making a case against having pets and it's like been stuck in my head for a long time um so let's talk about dogs your most famous dog osa has a couple of songs including osa's song which is very different than her so osa's song it sounds like you wrote that at the start of her life when you were a little baby (laughs) teen little early 20s person and then the song osa you wrote it sounds like after she died mm-hmm. and in a live performance you said the loss of osa continues to open my heart every day we also want to give a shout out to austin the dog who you lost in 2021 your dog now is georgie and also it sounds like your nephew dog otto is very important mm-hmm He's on his way here right now. Oh, hey. <laughs> with Tess, my favorite person? Yes. Um, with getting an animal, there is a knowledge that death is going to eventually come along with it. Hmm. So with that in mind, why would you continue to get dogs and make a case for having a dog? Because it's impossible not to. Once you've lived 
your life through their senses and their joy and that companionship. You know, after I lost Osa, I was like, oh, never again. Can't do this. Nope. She right. was the dog of a lifetime. Dog to end all dogs. Yep. Yep. Nope. And uh, and then there was this absolutely traumatized pit bull that my friend Sid, who runs the rescue, literally sent me videos and photos of for four months until I realized <laughs> there was no other option <laughs> that I uh, was destined to accompany this absolutely uh traumatized beautiful dog and so he you know had so much pain in his life that I just felt like well I you know I know how to love dogs really well so all right and that's how he came into my life and and then a year after I lost him again I was like oh no can't never nope can't do this again no that was it two dogs that's all that's all the grief and uh a year into living without him my sister brought her dogs here and I took care of them while she went on vacation. And but <laughs> the day after she left, Georgie popped up on Instagram. And I was like, I'm driving to Manhattan. That's my dog. <laughs> 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 and I don't know, it was like, you know, being a, a year without a dog in the house and then having my sister's two dogs here and and the minute they left, I was you're, like you're a sucker. I'm a total sucker. You know, just that the the companion, just their spirits, you know, are so beautiful. And I wasn't letting that back in. But after a week with them here, it's like, and Georgie looks exactly like her cousin Otto, which is why she caught my attention mm. that morning. And uh, they're best buds. And it was, yeah, it's just going to, that's, it's going to happen forever. Every time I'm going to say, mm. nope, can't do it. And a year later, I'm going to say, well, the, my favorite part of every single day is being in the woods with my dog. That's the best part of every single day. Mm. Why would I not do that again? There are a lot of dogs that want to run around in the forest as much as I do. So, it's a good answer. Okay, Meg, before we let you go, will you do the lightning round? <laughs> I'll give it my best chance. I'm very slow. We'll, we'll give it a try. Okay. Meg Hutchinson, it's the lightning round. Question number one, who is your favorite Guthrie? Woody. All right. I thought it was going to be Arlo with the Great Barrington connection. You'd think, right? Especially since I've sung yeah. in his church many times, but... Woody, acceptable answer. What is the quintessential accessory every dog owner needs? Well, it depends on the dog. 100% depends on the dog. They've all three needed totally different things. What does Georgie need? Georgie needs a hunting whistle for when she takes off after a deer and cannot hear my voice because she's running so far away. All right. I'm going to try that out. <laughs> my dog runs after deer, too. When is the best time of day to write a song? About 3 a.m. Okay. <laughs> Set your alarm, everyone. Oh, no, just don't go to bed. I don't go to bed. Oh, all right. Okay, yeah, great. Stay up That's all night. the scary part of the night. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you went swimming? Uh, last week. What is a book I should read? Mm, I kind of stopped reading after school to clear my brain, but Stephen Jenkinson writes some very interesting, challenging books. And uh, he wrote a book, Die Wise, that's very um, compelling. I love a challenge. Okay, just a few more. What is your most useful non-musical skill? Listening. Mm. What is the best road snack? Gosh, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's been a while since I've been on the road, Cindy. You're too well behaved uh, for snacks. Trail mix. Trail mix. Okay. <laughs> Hippie food, of course. Yeah. Little pieces of tofu dipped in hummus. Ah, uh, oh gosh, I just had a visceral reaction to that. <laughs> no, thank you. All right, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place in the world? Mm. For me, Ireland, mm. and particularly have fallen in love with the Barra Peninsula in County Cork and uh, went there and drove around the whole peninsula and spent time. There's a, a Buddhist um, temple there, retreat center, Dzogchen Barra, right on these high cliffs over the ocean. And it was so gorgeous. I arrived there on a full moon and uh, all the gardens are full of like these fragrant herbs and you're on overlooking the ocean and I thought this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Wow. All right, I'll meet you there. Deal. 
Meg, thank you. This has been just, I don't know. There's no words to describe you. I love you. I love you. And thanks for going right into the depths. And and, uh, thanks for being my pal back in the early days, too. Oh, my gosh. When I didn't know how to talk to adults, Meg was my friend. And it seems like she's still my friend. You've always had it together, Cindy. (laughs) (laughs) No matter how socially anxious I felt when I was there at like 6 a.m. at WERS, I felt safe the minute I was in the room with you. So thanks for that. Well, thank you. That means a lot. This episode of Basic Folk was so rightly produced by Sarah Wardrop. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Find us wherever you get podcasts or head to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Or you can share it with a friend. I feel like that's even better. Okay, thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.